Okay, back to 1 Peter now. Uh, this is not a big book, it's not a long book, but it is a dense book, theologically speaking. Uh, and it's all about, uh, as Christians, for believers of Christ, life and how we are to live it. According to Peter, in our own personal experience, uh, it turns out that in the course of living life as an exile, which for us just means a Jesus follower on this planet, um, as a result of being an exile, there are times that can be a real challenge for us to focus on the good, to see the blessings all around us, when the bad can feel so overwhelming. And yet those are exactly the times when we are reminded to rejoice. Peter's first words to the exiled Christians, whether they were willingly exiled or, or forcefully exiled, but his first words to them after the standard greeting was, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. And then he explains why we are to bless and praise God, regardless of our present circumstances. He says, according to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that was made possible through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So our hope, our living, constant, with us, everyday hope comes from God. It is external to us. It's not dependent on us or how we feel that day or what we may be experiencing. It's not going to change. That living hope that we possess as believers in Jesus will be constant and reliable. Peter described it as imperishable, unfading, undefiled. It's not affected by the weight or the worries of the world. So in the best of times, when things are going well, it's, it's relatively easy for us to rejoice in this hope. And in the worst of times, we learn that we can depend on, we can rely on this hope. It's not going to change or go away. Now, in truth, it seems to me Peter could have just stopped right there. This gracious and merciful gift of salvation, this living hope that we possess, that would be enough reason for us to rejoice and praise God. I mean, if that was all the Lord ever saw fit to give us, that would be more than enough. It would be more than we deserve. And how often we forget that. It's more than we deserve. But it's almost as if Peter's writing this, and he's, you know, being inspired by the Holy Spirit. He writes this out, and then God says, but wait, there's more. Not only will I give you eternal life, not only do I have a place prepared for you, I have, I have an inheritance for you that I'm keeping safe, but I want to spend eternity with you. God wants us to live in relationship with him. He calls us to be holy so we can be like him so we can share eternity with him. And the path to holiness requires us to live in obedience. That's come out twice so far. We've been called to obedience to Jesus, and we've been called to obedience to the truth. And that requires us to turn away from our former sinful passions. We have to repent. Stop doing the things we were doing that weren't holy. Start doing the things that are more holy. And then, of course, that requires some testing of our faith along the way. To, for, for one reason, we're tested to see if our faith is genuine. Are we truly grateful for our salvation? Are we grateful enough to do whatever we're asked to do in obedience? But also, the testing of our faith is to build up our faith. It's not unlike going to the gym. You know, you have to break muscles down before you build them back up. Faith kind of works the same way. Faith testing and passing those tests moves us along towards holiness. It keeps us going in the right direction. 
And then we learn that we can trust God even in more, even more, even in hard times. Now, part of that challenge we heard last week is to love our fellow believers. It's to love our brothers. And he doesn't use the word tolerate. We're not just supposed to tolerate our fellow believers. I mean, that would give us a pretty easy out, wouldn't it? Especially in the context of a Sunday morning where there's usually, you know, at least a couple more people here. We can just avoid people if we want to. There's enough people here. We can avoid the ones that we're not particularly fond of. But he doesn't use the word tolerate. He uses the word Philadelphia. He uses the word love, brotherly love. We're to show a genuine interest. Ask them questions. It, it, It requires personal interaction. Now, this is easy for us to say. It's even easy for us to hear. It's sometimes harder to put into practice. Because holiness, as it turns out, does not come naturally to us. It can be hard, which is why Peter continues with the holiness lessons as we move into the book. Now we're into chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So, 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 the so here, it's a connector. It's kind of like a therefore. It builds on what has come before it. Which was, here's just a quick glimpse into some of the things we've already looked at. Back in chapter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So, since we're doing all of these other things, so, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So we can see how these are connected, right? These are kind of like Lincoln logs or, or they're, they're building blocks. Where the, the idea is building as we're going forward. P- Peter's laying out a, a process or hopefully a progress for us as we go through. A call to holiness requires obedience to truth. It requires turning away from our former sinful lifestyles. It requires us to love Jesus enough to want to be like him. And then that love begins to spill out over onto the brothers and sisters in Christ around us. And apparently the transformation process for most people can be a bit slow. We have to be told repeatedly some of these things. Right? He's already said, put away the former passions. And then he says here again, put away those passions like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. So we said last week that holiness is not just a a desire given to the believer. I think it is, but it's also a call to action. It requires effort on our part. It started with be holy. After we received God's grace and mercy through salvation, then we were called to prepare our mind for action. Be sober-minded. And then the list of obediences begins to unfold. Because holiness, as it turns out, requires effort. Now this kind of struck me as I was was going through and and I looked at the, the action words, the, the verbs that were just in the first two chapters. All the things we are called to do. In chapter 1, we are called to rejoice, prepare our mind, be sober-minded, set your hope on grace, do not be conformed, be holy, conduct yourselves with fear, love one another. Chapter 2, we're going to see 
Put away malice and all those other things. Long for spiritual milk. Abstain from the flesh. Keep conduct on. We see this list of stuff we're called to do. It is not a short list. This is two chapters worth. There's more coming. They don't get easier. Holiness, it turns out, is not laziness. The desire, the, the drive to be Christ-like, it ain't for the faint of heart. But we have the benefit, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit who will lead us into truth. But it's not like we can just kick back on a chaise lounge waiting for the Spirit to do all the heavy lifting for us. Here's some stuff we got to do. And again, you notice with one exception that I put in yellow, everything is a do. There is only one do not. These are all positives. You need to go do these things. So, when people say, you know, the Bible is just a big old book of don'ts. They're not reading the right parts. Okay, sure. The Ten Commandments are pretty heavy on don'ts. But it seems pretty clear, at least getting into this section, if we stay focused on doing the do's, there just isn't time to do the don'ts. We're going to be busy. We're going to be occupied. Now, an outcome of our salvation, an awareness of Jesus' work on the cross for our benefit, leads us to a pursuit, a lifelong pursuit of holiness. And what, what's happening on the inside, what we believe on the inside, has to work its way to the outside if our faith is genuine. So, part of the process is to put away these things. Now, although we likely get the, the, the gist of what Peter is saying here, I thought it would be helpful for us just to run through those words quickly. Malice means wickedness or badness. It, it's sometimes used as evil, but it speaks to intentionality. We intend to be bad. We want to be bad. You think about it in our own justice system. You can be charged with a crime with malice aforethought. Right? We plan this out. We plan to do bad things. We like to do bad things. We intentionally sin, which, let's be honest, we've all done. And, and deceit is treachery or guile. It means being sneaky or sly. If you have kids, you get this perfectly. Doing bad things and thinking we're going to get away with it. Trying to cover our tracks. Nobody will know. It implies intentionality. You know it's wrong, but you're going to try to cover it up and do it anyway. Hypocrisy, most of us are familiar with. It might be translated as insincerity. It's where, where we, we might present ourselves as one thing, but inside we're really something else. Christians are often accused of this. Sometimes rightfully, not always, but we're often accused of this. Um, because sometimes we can go out of our way to point out everybody else's sins and somehow overlook our own or pretend as though we don't have any. That's hypocrisy. That's why Jesus said we need to get the log out of our own eye. You know, we've got to make sure we're, we're practicing before we start preaching. Wish I hadn't said that. <clears throat> Envy. Again, this is something we're probably familiar with. It's, it's begrudging what someone else has that we don't have. It's similar to jealousy, but envy goes a little bit further. Not only do you wish they didn't have it, and you did, but we kind of wish they didn't have it at all. It's a little more malicious. It's a little more spiteful than just jealousy. It is not a pretty look. And then he ends the list with slander. A synonym for slander might be defamation, saying bad things about someone. 
but slander really has more of a sense of secrecy about it. Rather than maybe publicly defaming someone, slander would be more like backbiting or spreading rumors, underhanded or, or hurtful gossip about somebody. Not a pleasant list. And it's, it's a repu repu repugnant list, really, of things that none of us would ever do. I mean, no self-respecting Christian would ever do these things. And yet, Peter felt obligated to write them down to the church. Okay, this is what Christians are not supposed to do. And he doesn't say, so if you have done these things in the past, or if you happen to be in the process of doing these things, you need to stop he writes this almost as though he assumes that we all do these things from time to time and we need to stop. Just stop. He actually says, put them away. Uh, as though we keep them maybe on the coffee table. You never know when you're going to need some slander. So you just keep, you keep it close by and ready for whenever the need arises. You know, they're, they're kind of our go-to defense mechanisms maybe. Maybe they've just become part of our former passions, our former behaviors. And put away means rid yourselves. Get them away from you. Now the truth is we're all capable of doing any or all of these things, but holiness requires us to put them away. Turn away from them. Don't just stop doing them, but throw them out completely. And perhaps, he says, maybe do this instead. And he gives us an alternative. He says, like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now at the end of chapter 1, just a few, few verses back, Peter told us that we have been born again through the living hope and abiding word of God. He said this good, this good news was preached to you. Just in the previous three verses, he runs through this whole list of this born again analogy. So the reference to spiritual milk seems to be a pretty obvious reference to the word of God. That's what we're to base our behaviors on now. That's, why we should, that's where we should turn in times of distress or difficulty. We turn to God's word. Now, it's also worth noting, I think, that I don't think Peter's calling the exiles here just a bunch of babies. Look, you're just a bunch of spiritual babies. Get your act together. Grow up. I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. Maybe there were a few. He's not, he's not calling them weak in their faith, necessarily. But the analogy here is that like a, a newborn that reflexively turns to his or her mama when the need for nourishment or desire arrives, as believers, we should reflexively turn to God's word. That should be where we go first. When difficulty arises, we reflexively turn to the Word of God. So when we're wounded, when we're damaged by somebody, when we're offended, when we don't know where to turn or what to do next and whatever the situation is, that's where we turn. Rather than on, turn on the person who offended us or the person who said things about us, or rather than do something back to them, turn to Scripture. And he ends this thought with, you will turn to Scripture if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now back in verse 17 of chapter 1, Peter also wrote, if you call on him as Father. So the ifs here are interesting. I don't think Peter is questioning their faith necessarily. He's using this to make a point. Verse 17, he could have easily written, uh, since you call on him as Father, then conduct yourselves with fear. This verse might say, since you have tasted that the Lord is good, you ought to turn to Scripture. I mean, he's writing to believers after all, but he's laying out an if-then argument. 
He's showing how one of these things should necessarily follow the other of these things. If you call on him as father, then you ought to turn to scripture. I'm not calling them immature Christians, not questioning their faith. He's explaining this, this process that should be developing. If A, then B. If you claim faith in Christ, then you rely on scripture. And the march to holiness continues. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now we start getting into uh, kind of a, a larger thesis, a, a bigger idea, some direction as to where Peter's going. But we're going to hit just a couple ideas here first. The first is, it says, as we come to him. Some translations might say, as you come near to him. So the idea is that there's this ongoing, repeated process. We are to continually come near to come near to Jesus. It's not just a one-time prayer. It's the beginning of a process beginning of a relationship when we come to jesus with praises and prayers and, and rejoices and requests it implies an ongoing relationship not a one-time event we are to continue to come near well then we know that this living stone reference here is it's referring to jesus i mean he was rejected by men he was killed by men but as has already been mentioned he was resurrected so he is now a living stone and he was chosen by God for this task. So Jesus is the foundation. He is the cornerstone for this movement. He's the beginning. The entire system of Christian faith is based on, it's dependent on Jesus and his resurrection. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. And people ought to pity us. What a bunch of dummies. But that's not the case. Jesus did raise from the dead. I mean, God came up with a plan. He paved the way for redemption. Jesus died to secure it, and his resurrection proved it. So Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith, and we're called to be like him. So we become living stones. I mean, we're kind of chips off the old block. And he's using us to build up a spiritual house, the church. The worldwide body of believers. The, the word for house here is the Greek word oikos, which some of you have probably heard before. But it's the, the word oikos is often used in reference to God's house, or even sometimes the temple in Jerusalem. It has this grander, bigger meaning. There's a connection here between us being the spiritual house and God's dwelling place. We, all of us, all scattered believers, were being built into the house of God. We are the dwelling place of God. Collectively, we are the temple. I mean, that's an amazing thing for us to consider. I can't spend any more time on that this morning, but it's an amazing thing for us to consider. Well, Peter then goes on to tell us that in addition to being living stones, becoming the very structure of the church body, we are also a holy priesthood. It's our job to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, this all starts to lean pretty heavily to Jewish temple imagery but not exclusively. 
Because even the, the pagan converts, if they had no background in Judaism at all, wherever, wherever they might have come from, even the pagan con- converts would have had probably familiarity with any number of pagan cults from throughout the, the world, most of which involved temple sacrifices. So the language, the imagery to them is very familiar, but the teaching, the intent, is quite different. I mean, only Jesus was killed and yet still lives. Not any of those pagan deities they were worshiping. Only Jesus' followers were perceived and described as being part of the family. They were, in fact, becoming the temple. Jesus' followers were being made into the the, the very dwelling place of God. That can't be said for any of the other pagan cults. Now, this is far different from those pagan practitioners who essentially would have made their obligatory sacrifices to whatever deity they were worshiping, but probably cowering in fear as they were doing it. And that's a very different kind of fear than the reverent fear of God that we talked about last week. So Peter is pointing out here uh, another difference between the believer, the followers of Christ, and the culture at large. Even though the ritual, the practice, may look familiar, it may seem familiar, the meaning and the intent is far different. Peter goes on. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter continues to build on this cornerstone idea. And he, he quotes, starts off quoting here with Isaiah 28, 16. That's the, the behold part in quotations. So by going back to an Old Testament text, Peter is again, I think, showing a, a sovereign God whose plan has been in place from the beginning. This was true in Isaiah's day. It's still true in our day. He's confirming that this is not really teaching anything new. In fact, he's connecting the dots between the Old Testament promise of a cornerstone and Jesus as the fulfillment of the cornerstone. He, he's connecting all these dots so that it makes sense for everyone. And then he, he adds that little sentence in there. So the honor, that part. Peter adds, so if we believe in this sovereign God and if we believe that Jesus is the cornerstone, we will not be put to shame. In fact, he says, we'll be honored for our faith. Oh, maybe not today, but we'll be honored. Now, conversely, he goes on to say, for those who do not believe, and he cites Psalm 118.22 and Isaiah 8.4. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I mean, those pretty well sum up how a lot of our culture thinks about Jesus today and did then as well. I'm sure this has been the case in times past, but it is certainly true for us now that many of those who reject Jesus seem to have no fear, no hesitation, no reservations in telling the world why they reject him or why they find him offensive or why they mock him. Or interestingly, I've always been amazed by this, why many people go out of their their way to say why they flat out hate Jesus even though they don't believe in him. He doesn't exist according to them. How do you hate something that doesn't? But it's, it's, they find it so offensive that 
they have this strong reaction to it. So much of like we saw, well, what we saw in Revelation, Peter uses scripture here to, to remind us that there are two classifications, two groups of people. Those who believe in Jesus, who's the cornerstone of our faith, and who live accordingly, and those who do not believe in Jesus, who reject him. They see him as an offense. How dare you tell me how to live my life, for example. Two groups of people. There's not a third way. There's not a melting pot of all possible spiritual belief systems. Well, then comes the hard, hard or the troubling part of this text. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We don't like that part, so let's just continue reading, shall we? No, we're going to talk about that for a minute. Um, destined means pre-appointed or predetermined. So although it's not explicitly spelled out here, I think it's pretty easy to see in, in, in Peter's flow of logic here that the same sovereign God of just a few verses ago is the same God now who seems to decide and declare destiny. And that idea, that thought, makes us uneasy. Can a loving God, would a loving God, really predetermine someone's eternal destiny? And what we mean by that is, does God really choose to send people to hell? Now, this could take us into weeks or months of sermon fodder. And I, I'm not sure we'd come out with a suitable answer for all of us. But when we address this question, can a loving God, would a loving God really predetermine someone's eternal destiny resulting in hell? The scriptural answer seems to be, apparently, that's what happened. Now, obviously, we're less bothered that he chooses some for salvation. We're okay with that part. We're only bothered by the ones chosen to go to hell part. When really, none of us deserve the salvation part. But we all deserve the hell part. So the fact that God would choose some is an act of mercy. And we end up focusing on the wrong thing. We focus on the hell part, and we forget that God chooses some for reward, for eternal eternity with him in heaven. None of us deserve it. None of us warrant it. None of us have earned it. But I also think it's important to notice here that as Peter writes this, the verbs he use, uses in the text here, they are in the present tense. So it's almost as though he's saying, for those who, who presently do not believe, for those who are presently stumbling, for those who are presently disobeying, this kind of leaves open the possibility that some of the unbelievers may yet come to faith. But we don't know. It can't be assumed, but it's possible. We don't know God's timeline for their salvation. And nor we should, should we conclude from this that all people everywhere will be born again at some point. That's not clear in Scripture either. Now again, this whole idea of, of God choosing, it may not seem morally right to us, but we're not God who actually is morality. 
So how would we know for sure? You know, I've, I've come to the conclusion that, that we're just not going to understand this process this side of heaven. What we can cling to is that God is a good and merciful God. He does not condemn us all to hell, which is what we deserve. But it's also true that Romans says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's got a plan. He's just not obligated to tell us what it is. I mean, I think we want to understand this. We may think we deserve to understand this process. But you remember when Job was going through all of his, you know, testing. And he asked or he challenged God, and the, the Lord's response to him was, Job, I am. Where were you when I spoke creation into existence? Oh, right. You weren't there yet. His point, of course, was you weren't involved in creation because I hadn't yet created you. I am the creator. This is my plan. You don't need to understand it all. You just need to trust me. And part of coming near to Jesus, part of learning to lean into our living hope, is that we learn that we can trust that whatever God has planned is far greater and far grander than anything we can imagine. We can trust that this will ultimately end in greater glory for him and blessing for us. I, I think we'll, we can trust that one day it will all unfold before us and we'll all go, ah, now I see. So Peter reminds us, uh, reminds us of these, these, these groups, these class distinctions, the believers and the unbelievers. And he turns his attention back to the believers. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not yet received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, this is this continuation of this two distinction idea. There are those who stumble on the idea of Jesus, those who reject him, and that's contrasted with those last texts with the believer here. That's the purpose of the but here. The people before, the unbelievers, they, they believe this and, and acted this way, but you are chosen. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Now, if Peter's intent here was, was to build up and encourage the faithful, this goes a long way to getting us there, doesn't it? I mean, this is, this is a heck of a spiritual resume. We are chosen. We're, we're royalty. We're holy. We must be pretty dang special. Right? Although, a more careful reading does point out the fact that these great attributes really have nothing to do with us. God was the first mover here. Just as God appointed some to stumble, he chose us. He is transforming us into a royal priesthood. He has set us apart as a holy nation. This is all about what God has done for us. So we ought not get too puffed up about this. 
In reality, we could have just as easily been included in the other group. So why did God choose me? Why did he choose you? We don't know. But keep in mind that we can't even safely assume that one who stumbles over Jesus as an offense today will continue to stumble forever. That may not be the case. We don't know the Lord's plan for all of humanity. We can safely assume it will lead to God's glory and our benefit, but we don't really know the details other than that. What we do know, what this tells us, is what our response should be. Because we have been chosen, because we have been made or are being made holy, because we are a royal priesthood, we ought to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the word excellencies here means goodness or virtue. So we see this, this pattern moving forward. Again, this call to action. For, for reasons we're not told, God chose us and not others of us. And because we've been chosen, it is our job, it is our duty to proclaim the goodness of God. What's happening on the inside has to work its way out to the outside. It's our job to tell of his greatness, to declare his virtues to anyone who will listen. Which may in turn cause some of those who are stumbling on the cornerstone to embrace the cornerstone. And what a story we have to share. I mean, once we were nobodies, but now we're a spiritual family, we're a body, we're a church. Once we were without mercy, but now God has shown his mercy on us. We are chosen and holy all because of the goodness of God. So Peter's intent here is to encourage them, but just not in the way we first thought. It's not to puff us up. It's to remind us of who God is and what he has done. He's calling us to live a life of holiness as a reaction to what God has done. He's calling for our own spiritual growth to prove our love, our faith in Jesus. But also, he's calling us to grow so that we may impact the foreign culture, that we may impact the unbelievers around us. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what was implied in the last few verses is now spelled out clearly here. As Jesus followers, we've been given a purpose. It's, it's a twofold purpose, really. The first is we are to continue to strive for holiness. And this just confirms that our faith is genuine. It moves us closer to Christ-likeness. It is God-glorifying. And he relates this in terms of how we ought to live. Peter reaffirms or re-emphasizes what's already been said several times. Put away all those other things. Malice and slander and hypocrisy. All that stuff has to go back. Even farther back to 114. Do not give in to your former passions based on ignorance. You can't continue the life you are living if you claim to be a follower of Christ. So you have to abstain from your, for your former sins. Why? because they wage war on your soul. Anybody not know that to be true? I mean, that's heavy-duty language, and it's appropriate. And I know that many of us, most of us probably, have issues in our lives which seem to keep coming up, temptations that keep coming up, trying to trip us up. Now, Satan's not omniscient, but he's smart enough to know how and where and when we struggle. And that's where he keeps picking at us. 
He tries to keep us from our holy pursuits. The phrase, wage war in our souls, is accurate. But we're told here that we can control it. Not the temptation, perhaps, but we can abstain. We can say no. And this teaching is entirely for our benefit, for the benefit of our own soul. Peter says we've got to keep track of that. But then he says, after we're doing our own self-maintenance, you know, after we do that, or really as we continue to do that, because we're never quite there, as we continue to keep track of our own soul, the call to abstain from sin, doesn't have a use-by date as it turns out, but we are to safeguard our own souls so that we can conduct ourselves in such a way that even the Gentiles, the strangers, the, the foreigners among us, even they say, there's an honorable person right there. I mean, even if they want to say something bad about us, they'll have a hard time coming up with anything. In fact, our behavior is so above reproach that we may actually cause them to glorify God. Which is interesting, this is the same idea found in Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and your glory to your Father who is in heaven. I mean, Jesus taught this as part of the Sermon, uh, sermon on the Mount. Um, in fact, I, let, let's look at the whole context here, because I think this is real interesting. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a, a, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is telling the crowd here that as a consequence of being a Jesus follower, we have this special status. He's telling them, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You have been blessed. But the blessing is not for you alone. We're called to share it with others. We're called to be salt and light. Which is exactly the same thing Peter is sharing here. We're a chosen race. We're, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, as a consequence of our faith in Jesus, and we're called to live out our faith in such a way that the unbelievers around us notice. And they notice in a good way. Not in, huh, that guy calls himself a Christian. Harumph. Not in that way. But they notice this as in, wow, anybody else that was going through that would have just lost their mind by now. I don't know how they manage to go through what they're going through and not just totally lose it. Could it be their faith? Could Jesus be real? You know, just as we sometimes forget that God has already given us more than we deserve, and I think we have to work at remembering that, honestly. I mean, we even get upset that he's not giving us more. But we can also forget that our salvation, as precious and, and personal as it is to us, our salvation is not just for us. It is to be lived out for the benefit of others. We are to share it. In our, in our day and age, in our, our culture of, of fierce independence and entitlement, living a life of genuine faith is going to have ripple effects that we're probably not even aware of. People are always watching, listening, what are we showing them? Are we living, living like a person chosen by God? Are we living like royal priests? What do people see? What do they think of when we come up in conversation? This ought to keep us up at night every now and again. 
So let's pray in our collective and personal strive for holiness that they are increasingly seeing our good deeds. They are increasingly seeing our different lifestyle. We'll see that more as we move ahead in the next couple of weeks. This, This can be challenging. But when we consider that some current unbelievers, maybe our friends, our our family members, current unbelievers may be converted from stumbling on Jesus the cornerstone, and they can be converted to accepting and embracing Jesus the cornerstone because of how we live, that ought to increase our desire for righteous and holy living. May it be so. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are again humbled at the time we can spend in your word this morning. It is so vast and so rich and so deep, uh, and there's so much here that we struggle with, um, but Lord, I, I, we are grateful for your patience, for your love for us, uh, and even as we look at these words that Peter is writing for the first century church, they are just as applicable for us today because we still struggle in those same areas. We are still fallen, sinful human beings who have just been saved by the grace of Jesus. Help us grow in our faith. Help us stand up to the the challenges, the tests that we face in our faith. Help us live it out in a way that people see a difference. Uh, Even if it's a soft difference, as we'll continue to talk about moving forward. Sometimes it means just not participating in the way the world participates in things. But Lord, I pray that it's it's more active than that. Um, That we become so deeply appreciative for the fact that we have been saved, that we have been chosen that we can't help but share the excellencies of that with other people around us. Again, we're so grateful for your patience, your grace, and your mercy in our life. Help us continue to grow steadfast and strong in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.